A very warm welcome to our panelists and gratitude to the South Asia Institute for hosting today's webinar on the labor of fashion, the global COVID-19 crises, and the politics of resistance in Bangladesh. So the worldwide COVID-19 pandemic has posed an unprecedented crisis in the global apparel industry. We are seeing major fashion retailers in the global north closing their stores and laying off workers. Northern-based brands are canceling, suspending orders, or delaying payments. The current crisis is markedly different than 2013, and audiences um, will remember, of course, when Northern brands demonstrated strong public commitment for protecting the safety and security of Bangladeshi garment workers after the collapse of Rana Plaza, the deadliest industrial disaster that killed over 1,100 workers and injured over 2,500. Bangladesh is the world's second largest ready-made garment exporter after China. 81% of the country's exports are from the RMG sector. And the textile and apparel sector contributes around 20% to Bangladesh's GDP, employing 4 million workers. There are reports suggesting nearly 1 million workers have lost their jobs. Workers are not getting severance pay or even their regular pay. On top of the health threat, they're also facing the impact of loss of livelihood. The first case of COVID-19 was identified in Bangladesh on March 8th, and the prime minister announced a general holiday or a nationwide lockdown on March 23rd. Since then, there have been significant confusion in communication and policies among the government, the Bangladesh Garment Manufacturers and Export Association or the BGMEA, the nationwide trade organization of garment manufacturers in Bangladesh, the factory owners regarding factory closures, workers' wages, the distribution of the government stimulus package, and more recently reopening of some factories and implementation of safety measures. So we'll move to Dina. Thank you, everybody. I wanted to thank the South Asia Institute, but also Durba, Ilora, and especially Nafisa for bringing us all together. I'm going to talk more about what hasn't changed after COVID and also the spaces that may have opened up. So the pandemic, despite all the death and destruction it has unleashed, has actually also had a powerfully illuminating effect. It has forced into popular discourse and imagination at least having to think about inequality, usually things that are invisible, especially in relation to the structural violence of the economy. I think we're in a different phase now, whether we're in the US or in South Asia, it's not as easy as it was before to just not think about which bodies are likely to be infected, who is left to die and who is allowed to live. One thing I think the pandemic has done, it has punctured a whole set of liberal and imperial myths around neoliberal capitalism and third world women who need to be saved, especially Muslim, Muslim women. These myths have become our common sense and they produce popular consent to otherwise exploitative systems. And the first myth is the empowerment of women, especially of Muslim women, lifting their families out of poverty through factory work. And I'm not saying that individual women have not actually changed their lives, but there have been very few structural changes. But, you know, if you read the New York Times just from last week, there was this the framing is very much about how this factory work will just lift the woman and the family and the nation out of poverty. 
right? And it's most recently embodied in, for instance, Nike's Girl Effect initiative, which at least we in the US heard a lot about. And in Bangladesh, I think another powerful set of myths have grown up around the garment industry and the empowerment of women to the extent where the very powerful owners lobby, the BGMEA, until recently, it could do no wrong. For brands, what these myths have done is they justify cheap racialized labor. They justify paying factories as little as possible because there is this idea that there's almost like corporations are doing a favor by being in Bangladesh. But other speakers have referred to is right now we see the big brands have actually broken their contracts. They've refused to pay for goods that they actually had contractual obligations to take on and to pay for. By doing this, first of all, they made their priorities clear. They have made clear that what they're really interested in is in profits and that the so-called ethical business model, it's not a priority, but it's a secondary when it's convenient. So it's very interesting because what we see is when they don't actually pay up, you know, we have to stop thinking of these corporations as doing good, as capitalism, as being beneficial for both sides. It's a very unequal system. And this myth of free and equal trade, I think we really need to attack this. And how is it that corporations can just do this, not pay after signing contracts? They can do it because trade rules are made by the powerful for the powerful. So there is something called a clause that I did not know about before the pandemic called the force majeure, which gives companies a way to slip out of their contracts in case there are disasters. And, you know, it's a very vague kind of clause, but it's a loophole. Now, that to me seems pretty criminal, but we don't call it criminal. We just call it going by the rules of trade or free trade. We need to think about that and hopefully we are beginning to move away from an unquestioning acceptance of this idea of corporate benevolence, which we really do have in the United States. And I'm really talking about the United States here because this is where I live and work. So this idea of corporate social responsibility has had extremely pernicious effects on transnational organizing and solidarity. We see this in the wake of the much celebrated Accord on Fire and Building Safety, for instance, it's very popular with European and American leftist activists. And of course, it was necessary, you know, we needed building safety and fire safety, but it, was, it didn't address the key structural aspects of workers' lives that made them desperate enough to enter a building that obviously had cracks in it. It didn't address, somehow the accord became the solution to Bangladesh's garment industry problems. And it became the solution, not inside Bangladesh, where a lot of people weren't necessarily talking about it, but Europe and North America, to the exclusion of talking about other issues. The result is 25 years later, we see exactly the same set of problems. We see exactly what hasn't changed after 2013 in particular. No lack of payments, blacklisting, firing if you speak up, all of those things that were there 25 years ago when I first started fieldwork, they're there. The accord rendered technical what were essentially political problems. And more importantly, I think the accord really left the supply chain intact 
But I think one of the things the pandemic has laid bare, another myth, about the supply chain as sort of an equal opportunity way of producing goods, the current pandemic has shown the extreme asymmetry in supply chain capitalism. And that asymmetry really affects laboring bodies in places like Bangladesh. So the tremendous power that brands have over local manufacturers means they can push down prices as much as they like. And local factories who don't want to lose their profits then pass on the burden to workers by increasing individual quotas, hiring workers. This is exactly what happened after Rana Plaza.